When law and duty are one, united by religion, you never become fully conscious, fully aware of yourself. You are always a little less than an individual. From Muad'Dib, The 99 Wonders of the Universe by Princess Irulan. Welcome to Reading Dune, a podcast where we read Dune, you, me, and Evan, we all read Dune together by Frank Herbert, and we talk about it. So if you're a Fremen or this is your first time through, if you're this far, you already know that this podcast was like made just for you. Just for you. My, my name is Caleb Pauls. And I'm Evan Diaz. And together, you, me, and Evan, we are all going to read some Dune. Yeah, we are. More deep. More deep. More deep. More deep. Like they said it like Kermit in the intro. More deep. Well, okay. Somebody uh, commented last, um, let's just say, and, uh, their favorite part of reading Dune was, was some something. I feel really bad for <laughs> not remembering at this point. But there was a comment they asked where I was from because I say Muhadib weird. Because the movie yeah. says Muhadib in the book. Muhadib. The audiobook would like, and so I decided this time, fine, I'll conform, I'll do the thing, <laughs> and I'll say, Muhadib. But you know what? I personally, personal, personal opinion, that does not sound as cool as Muhadib. Muhadib. I feel like the deeper tones, like, like it was more scary than, oh, like Muhadib. But I guess, I mean, he's, <laughs> if he's a little mouse, I guess the Muhadib is more mouse like than, I guess, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like, I'm thinking like Darth Vader in my head, but it's, I guess, I guess it's not. I mean, I was introduced to the word by none other than Caleb Paulus himself. So, <laughs> Muhadib, Muhadib, that ha is like ingrained in my brain now. And I'll have to unlearn that at some point for the good of the tribe. Well, when you, when you read the word Evan, how do you pronounce it? Like, um, I mean, probably a little more Muhadib. When I read it, it's like Muhadib, but now it's subconscious. Now I just read Muhadib because of the way you've been saying it this whole time. Well, you know, it it happens. Yeah, um, it's okay. It's okay. Well, if you have another complaint about how I'm talking about Dune, you can email us at uh, readingdune@gmail.com. Find us on Twitter. We're almost at 500 little Twitter followers, which is really Ooh. cool. Because we had like none when we started. And so that's, I, I call that a, an accomplishment. Good job. Um, speaking of emails and someone's favorite part, I legit just got this email from uh, Amina Sloan. Oh, cool name. Hello. My favorite chapter, along with many others, is The Death of Liette Kynes. Uh. I think this chapter was a creative way for Frank to explain more about the planet's ecosystem. However, it's my favorite chapter for different reasons. I think it really emphasizes how big of an impact Liette made, not only helping their society, but also becoming a part of it and understanding it. I think this is shown in the very moment he died, because his words are, the words Frank uses are, and his planet killed him. Wow. There'd be no other fitting way for Liette to go. It was kind of beautiful, beautiful in a cynical way, and it stole the victory from the Harkonnens. Amina says, okay, that's my bit. Thanks for reading. I really enjoy your podcast as a companion. The book was amazing. I'm so thankful to stumble upon you guys. Spice life forever. Wow, so spicy. But she had the side note. 
which I think this is this is actually really cool. She says, I wonder if maybe Liet Liet was hallucinating about his dad, that comment about not needing a hero, right? The um no it um no worse could fall to your people than falling into the hands of a hero. Mm. Maybe that was in regard to like Fade, right? Because Fade is supposed to come in, save the day, be this miraculous, I am the hero in this big setup, right? That was the Baron is trying to set up right now. Right. Liette wouldn't have known that, but the readers are sort of piecing that together. Right. And, you know, why have a false hero when you could have the spiritual desert mouse of Muadib? Muadib. Her words, not mine. I like it. Yeah. I mean, the false hero is definitely worse than the real hero, but is the real hero really better? Yeah. I think that's the question we all must ask ourselves eventually. Gosh. Why you got to do that to me, Caleb? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so let's talk about this quote. Who do you think this quote is like referring to in this chapter? Uh, I mean, I want to say the Fremen because they're they seem to have religion and law tied together more so than others oh for sure i could be wrong oh for sure but so i think this is talking about like muhadib reflecting back on stilgar mm. right like he's stuck in this situation between the law and his duty right the the law and the duty is to preserve the tribe and the way is to, you know, the strong survive and they become the leaders. However, he is, he's got this religious component now. Right. That Paul is the Lizan El-Gaib. And therefore he gets, he becomes less than the individual Stilgar, now part of a bigger system that he can never quite get out of. Yeah. And I think this quote is almost like Paul grieving that because he's losing a friend when this is happening. Wow. That's a lot that I didn't get while I was reading that. Man. It's okay. That's just reflections uh, afterwards. Reflections on the reflections of Mwadib. It's a, it's a great book. You should. We should. By Purg- Caleb Pauls. Purchase now on Amazon. All right. Uh, so. This is a gurney chapter. It's a it's a lot of people chapter. Holy Christmas. So first impressions, Evan, open when this chapter happens, what, what, are, what are you thinking? I thought we were starting off right. Uh, I thought we were starting right where we left off last chapter, and then Gurney's name popped up. And I was like, oh man, we are starting. Right where we left off. But from Gurney's perspective, this is going to be nuts. Like, as soon as I read the first, like, paragraph, I was like, oh, this is happening right now. You know, like, so excited. This is happening right now. And I think, um, granted, everything's been happening so far in book three. It's been kind of like, okay, like, the Baron has a new plan for Fade. Fade tries to kill the Baron, and then Howard has that plan. But that's kind of in motion now. Right. And then we meet Paul, and Paul's about to become a real Fremen and ride the, ride the worm. And as he's doing that, the young men are getting super pumped and excited because if he rides the real worm, he's going to take control 
of the Fremen and rule them. And he'll have to fight Stilgar to do that. And they want him to do it. And they want to ride north. But all Paul wants to do is relax. He wants to stop. And this is the chapter where everything changes for him. He's confronted with some things that he has to address now. Last time on Reading Dune, Paul is writing the biggest worm any Fremen in history has seen. Yes. He's writing it. He's writing it south. He wants to rest, but Stilgar wants Paul to take his place as the head of CH because it's the it is the way, right? Right. So they're gonna stop off at the cave of birds at the at the ridge here, but then they see an unmarked flying craft, an ornithopter in the distance. And there's no way that an ornithopter or anything flying should be this far south. Right. So they ditch the worm and scatter into the dunes. Just poof, gone. So who was in the that flying machine that the Fremen saw too deep in the desert? Um, Gurney Halleck or his men? Yeah. I don't know if he was actually in the Thopter, but he was a part of the, the crew. So I think when, yeah, I think... They they see this flying craft in the distance. It's probably it's flying in the ornithopter way, right? Which means it's flapping its wings. But I don't think this is an ornithopter that they see. I think they see the carryall carrying the crawler. It's big enough, and so it's like I see it like in my head. It's like against the sun. Do you see this little black dot that's flying towards you? Right. Um. Just like rippling in the heat. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. As the desert waves. And so the, <sighs> all the Fremen ditch the worm. And now, point of view from that little dot, you're in this giant carrier. We're probably in the crawler itself. As mm-hmm. Ger- Gurney is there. And Gurney's in like full pirate mode at this point in time. He's <laughs> completely embraced the smuggler like aesthetic. Makes like, sense. We probably saw him in Caladan. We probably like looked all nice, right? He he got to Arrakis. He's a little bit more dusty, but he still got that like gurney chic to him, man of the people. But here he's like full pirate mode. Yeah, he's probably grown his hair out a little bit, and his beard's all mangy. Got a little sand in it, right? And he's yeah, he's he's just full pirate. So as the Fremen are hiding in the desert, they watch this spice factory be carried by this carrier. And there's a ring of drone ornithopters, like insects hovering over their queen. And it just flies over them. Hmm. Inside the carrier, staring out the bubble window, is our man, Gertie Halleck. He's looking through his binoculars and he spots what looks like to be a spice blow right below him. Near the ridge. So he signals an ornithopter. It flies ahead and does a little dance with its wings, you know, because they're not using regular communications. They're radio silent Mm -hmm. in this area of the desert because who knows who could be listening. True. The the Harkonnens, the Fremen, this is beyond Harkonnen patrols, but it's just best to keep silent. You never know who's listening. So Gary uh, Gurney sheathes his binoculars. This is a good spot. The ridge should provide good protection. They're really deep in the desert. It's unlikely they would be ambushed way out here. So Gurney puts the things in motion. 
The carrier starts coming down. Troop reserves are being sent out to watch. The ornithopters fly up, but not too high, right? Because just they can't be spotted, so they got to fly kind of low. Right. Just kind of watching. This is... It, they probably won't be spotted by Harkonnens, but this is definitely Fremen country. And there are rumors about what Fremen do to people if they find them in their territory. Damn right. And Gurney knows. So he's a little uh, he's a little cautious. He checks his weapons, complaining to himself how, again, this cursed planet makes the shields completely useless. Shields on the dunes call worms. Worms eat carriers. Carriers carry spice. Spices will make them rich, or at least it makes somebody rich. So we have to protect <laughs> it at all cost. And Gurney can't be too careful out here because the Harkonnens and the Fremen are legit at war with each other. And this is known on the planet. Right. There is a war happening. Little skirmishes here and there. Villages are being taken. And uh, you can't be too cautious at this point. But here, in the deep desert, it was the Fremen that worried him. The Fremen didn't mind trading all the spice you could afford, but they were a devil on the warpath if, if you stepped foot where they forbade you to go. And of late, they'd been especially devilish and cunning. Everything about their cunningness and cleverness of the Fremen in battle really annoyed Gurney. <laughs> because he was too good. It was like a sophistication in everything he encountered. And like he had personally trained, Gurney had personally trained the best fighters in the universe. But these fighters, these Fremen tactics were better. It's like if he could have thought those thoughts, he would have thought it, but he didn't. And that just annoys the crap out of him. Gurney again looks out at this brutal landscape, sand and cliffs, and everything feels uneasy. Maybe it was that worm that they saw when they were flying over. Yeah, that'll make you feel uneasy. Yeah, that was a big one too. So, yeah. but it's on the other side. They should be. They should have some time. It should be okay. Do you think he saw? Like, do you think they saw enough of it to be like, "Whoa, that's the biggest worm ever"? Or was it just kind of like, like going into back, the back down in? Yeah, it probably just started just buried, and they said, "Oh, that's a worm." Watch out! But they watch out. Cautious. Yeah. yeah. So another head pops up at another bubble, right? The bubble is, he's like looking out of the bubble. I remember, I think about like these like uh, play places at like McDonald's or something. I used to go to as a kid. <laughs> and you know, like, you have that bubble they go in there and you're always as a kid, you're putting your hands on there and your tongue on it. Like, ah, like that's what I imagine these bubbles <laughs> these are. That's and, you know, your disgusting. Friend, <laughs> the friend pops in next to you like, hey there, how you doing? Well, <laughs> Another head pops into another bubble besides Gurney. And this is a legit, a space spice pirate. A weathered, single-eyed, blue-eyed, full-bearded, milky-teeth factory commander. You, you couldn't get more piratey than this. Well, looks like a real patch, sir. Shall I take her in? Gurney told the pirate to come down next to the ridge. Him and his men would disembark, and the crawler would then crawl from the spice from there. I've Hold been Gurney. waiting for your pirate voice since I started reading this. I'm so happy. It did not. It did not. Uh, 
disappoint at all. You knew it was coming too. <laughs> okay. So Gurney's, <laughs> Gurney's on edge, of course, through all of this. But he knows he's got to do a job here. And he's, he's, he's there. He's going to finish his job. So the, the crawler touches the sand, and it starts his little trek to, to the spices. Starts rolling. And Gurney pops the, the bubble dome open. He jumps out of the crawler. Five men come out after him. Gurney, of course, left his face mask filter like off so he could yell commands. And that was he needed his voice because there's no radio, no radios. So right. losing the losing the moisture was worth it at this point. So Gurney starts to climb the rocks. He's got he's got to get a better viewpoint. So he's climbing up the ridge. Checking the terrain, smelling the spice. It is rich. And of course, Gurney thinks, wow, this would be a great site for an emergency base. Deep here He's in the wrong. desert. You know, why is he not wrong there, Evan? <laughs> well, we're about to get there. I don't want to. Maybe I there's one of those people that don't read the book. They just listen to the podcast. We got to keep some of the mystery alive. If you're one of those people, by the way, because I've we've getting reports. The people aren't reading the book. They're not buying the $10 book on Amazon and spending <laughs> their precious time. You should just go do that. Support Frank somehow or something. His or, estate? I, no, not his Just watch the movie later when it comes out. <laughs> that will be good enough for me. <laughs> and if you've already watched the movie and you're coming to this point because you want to know what, what's happened after movie one, hi, welcome. We're glad to have you. This is great. All right, moving forward. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, okay, okay. So Gurney climbs up. He looks back at the men from like the ridge of the rocks. These, and these men, these were good. These were good men. You didn't need to tell them what to do every time. Not a shield, not a single shield glimmer showed on any of them. These weren't cowards. I think back to um, Duke Leto. He said, or maybe it was Paul recalling Duke Leto about like, once you give an order about something as a leader, you will always give an order about something. Right. These men don't need orders. They know what they're doing. And I just they know what the next step is. And Gurney's just like, ah, yes, these are these are these are decent human beings. So Gurney surveys the sand, checks the crawlers, creeping towards the spice, thopters and drone thopters, everything's in position, everything checks out. This is great. So he goes to turn around. He's gonna he's got one hand on the next ledge, about to pull himself up. And then as soon as he turns, 12. Roaring paths of flame streak towards the adopters from the ridge. Boom, 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 boom. Remember how Paul in the last Paul chapter was like, oh yes, let's ambush them. And the you know, the uh our men need time to practice with their new weapons. These were the new weapons. This is it. They have rockets. They have rockets. And remember how like Remember how um it was how it in the chapter the the stranger thinking chapter yeah how the so the um Baron brought in artillery to like shoot into the into the shield wall to like bury people because I knew that the people were going to go into the shield wall and right. the the Fremen were so interested like ooh what is this weapon that blows things up. This is fantastic. How would you <laughs> yeah. know about this? 
<laughs> they were into it. They were like, what is that? I love it. Explosions. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. We need some more of that in our lives. And they like good and they took rockets? one of these. They like can we have rockets? Oh my god, I want rockets. Newsflash. They got rockets now. <laughs> I don't know how they got rockets, but they got rockets. Yeah. By the horns of the great mother, rockets. They have rockets. They dare to use rockets? <laughs> and I like how Gurney was like just complaining about not wearing shields. But if a shield were to contact a rocket blast i mean boom yeah so yeah if no one's wearing shields rockets are fun <laughs> all right so rockets have went off as soon as gurney turns back to the rocks gurney is surrounded by hooded fighting fremen they just pop out of the rocks sneaky sneaky fremen i think like uh my first image was goes to like like Star Wars, where the Jawas just like pop out of nowhere, just yeah, didn't, but they're just fully friends. <laughs> so there, Gurney stood face to face with a hooded figure. He was crouched low, Chris knife in hand. Only the eyes of the man in front of him were visible. The blue within blue. So, Evan, who do yeah. we know that fights crouched down low? Uh, the uh, Paul the Fremen. I don't know. I don't know the answer you're looking for. Oh, I was looking for Paul. Yeah, this fight with Jameis. He's his classic is he gets down right. a little low, so he's in that. Gurney's hand moves towards his knife, but the match the match is over. The Thopters have all been destroyed by rockets. Right. His men have been ambushed by crazy ass Fremen. Uh huh. And he's face to face with one right now who's about to kill him. He's dead. Dead. So he's thinking this, and then he hears, Leave the knife in its sheath, Gurney Halleck. I imagine like a Batman voice. You know, like, I'm Batman. Like, leave the knife in its sheath, Gurney Halleck. Where's Rachel? <laughs> the voice sounded oddly familiar, even through the still suit filter. Gurney's like, you, you know my, my name? You've no need for a knife with me, Gurney. The hooded man straightened. Slipped his Chris knife into his sheath. Tell your men to stop. Their resistance is useless. <laughs> I like that uh, you at least went with a Batman voice as opposed to like a Bane voice. The darkness. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, you have no need for a knife with me, Gunny Halleck. I am the shadows. <laughs> I have a tummy ache. <laughs> I was born in darkness. <laughs> no, I mean, this is this is your Batman moment. Oh, yeah, you know? for sure. He appears out of nowhere. He's talking to you. It's just menacing as all get out. And then the man stands up, puts his full height, throws back his hood, swings his filter aside. Bum, bum, bum. So sick. Our man, Muhadib. Paul, Usul, Lizan El Gaib, the Quizwatch Hatterack, the man himself of Batman of this universe, Paul, right there. Wow. And of course, Gurney's body goes into full shock. 
100% shock. He's looking at the ghost of Duke Lido Atreides as a Fremen. He doesn't see Paul. He sees his old best friend. Mm -hmm. And then slowly, full recognition comes. Paul, he whispered, is it truly Paul? They said, they said you were dead. Gurney takes a half step forward, almost subconsciously towards him. Tell your men to submit, Paul commanded. He waved his hand toward the lower reaches of the ridge. Hooded men of the desert were literally everywhere. <laughs> Gurney looked down at the factory crawler and it was covered with Fremen, and not a single aircraft was in the sky. So Gurney calls out, Stop fighting! This is Gurney Halleck! Stop fighting! Slowly he started to see his struggling figures separate. These are friends! Fine friends! Gurney heard back. Half our friends are dead! <laughs> it, it was a mistake, Gurney said. Don't add to it! And at this, Gurney can see a slight smile creep onto Paul's face. Gurney looked at Paul. There was something in him that reminded Gurney of Paul's grandfather. That lineage, that hardness, that tenderness, all right there. Mm -hmm. They said you were dead, Gurney repeated to himself. Paul replied with admiration to his old teacher. And it seemed the best protection to let them think so. Gurney knew this was all the apology he would ever get. And he wondered if, it was, if anything was left in Paul from the boy he had knew, known, and trained on Caladan. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Paul took a step, fo step forward towards De Gurney, feeling the pain of leaving Gurney, leaving Duncan, leaving Howitt, leaving his father, the pain of losing everything Atreides. Yet, all that Paul could muster is the sound of Gurney's name. Gurney. Somebody of the old regime was alive. Something remained. The Harkonnens had not ripped everything from him. They rushed to each other and embraced. You young pup, you young pump, Gurney man, Gurney man. After the deep hug, they stepped apart and breathed a sigh of relief. And then Gurney started to tease Paul. So you're why the Fremen have grown so wise in battle tactics. Keep, they keep doing things I could have planned myself if I had even known. Gurney shook his head, still in disbelief. If, if only you'd gotten a word to me, I would, I would have come running. But the look in Paul's eyes stopped Gurney in his tracks. Paul, in his blue on blue, looked straight into Gurney's soul. The only thing he could do was nod. Gosh, I'm getting emotional just going through this again. Like, this is such a good moment of, like, reconciliation and, like, just the pain of losing everything. Like, that's just, we're just fresh again. Right. Oh, so beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Gurney. Gurney. Oh. So, Paul glances around at his death commandos because, you know, casual. Paul has death commandos now. Right, 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 right. The Fedaikin were only staring back in bewilderment. What was happening in this moment? They knew that Muhadib was technically the Duke of Arrakis, but never had they seen this power exercised outside of Fremen culture. Right. Like, 
like Muhadib has power outside of the CH. Outside of he is this, you know, master of sand, and we knew he'd do this, but he like he actually has power outside of this is crazy. Yeah. Paul looked back towards his old sword master. He saw this as a good sign. Because of course Paul's prescience is I don't know if he'd seen this moment. He knew eventually that Gurney could pop back up, but not know where. So this this feels like a good omen. He was on the course that the, in the future, everything is good. Everything turns out okay. Paul studies the crew, the pirates that had come with Gurney. How do your men stand, Gurney? They're, they're, they're smugglers. They're all smugglers. <laughs> they they stand where the prophets are. Like no one's gonna. They're pirates. Right. That's all they care about. Little enough profits in our venture, Paul said. Paul watches Gurney signal to him in the old Atreides battle language. The single flash of a finger, Gurney had signaled to Paul. There were men in the troop that were not trustworthy. Because you know they're pirates. They only care about one thing. Paul pulled on his lip to show Gurney he understood. Probably more subtle than how Caleb just pulled on his lip. Yike! What? I see you! Got it. Got it. Totally got it. (laughs) When Paul looked around, he saw that Stilgar was there. So now he has both of his mentors in technically like one room. Uh Like, oh, hey guys. How you doing? Seeing Stilgar rocked Paul's memory. There was an unsolved problem with Stilgar sitting right in front of him. So to ease or maybe to move past this thought, he decided, oh, it's best my two friends meet. <laughs> Stilgar, this is Gurney Halleck, of whom you've heard me speak of. He's, a, he's an old friend. He can be trusted. Any venture. I hear, Stilgar said. Stilgar. You are his duke. And when I hear this... I hear nothing but sadness in this. This is like a changing of the guard. Like, like Paul, you were our, you were our Usul. You were our person, but now, we've always known you were more than this, but now it's fully being like recognized. It was like a, it was like a grief there. Yeah. I thought it was kind of like, um, man, how do I explain it? It's like disdain from Stilgar about the ways of the Imperium. Mm. Like, you know, Paul's like, you can trust him. And he's like, yeah, I know I can trust him because he's like indebted to you for some stupid, archaic, imperial reason that you clearly have not given up on or like gotten over, you know? Yeah, Uh, that's it. Yeah. My Duke, Gurney thought. He looked at Paul, but now with completely new eyes. This wasn't the young pump he had trained. With the death of Duke Lita, the title of Duke now fell to Paul's shoulders. And then something happened in Gurney's brain. He started seeing the pattern of the Fremen War through different eyes. This was the same pattern that Duke Lita Atreides would have done. This is the same tactics, the same way of moving about and winning a war. The place within him that had died, that place of loyalty, admiration, and love for his duke started slowly coming back alive. Gurney looked around to see the smugglers he were commanding. Some were still struggling with their Fremen captors. Are you men deaf? 
This is the rightful Duke of Arrakis. Do as he commands. Slowly, the men start relenting. Paul moved up to his old friend, speaking in a low voice. Paul said, I did not expect you to walk into this trap, Gurney. <laughs> Almost like a joking way. Like, I we knew we were going to get people, but you, this is, this is nice. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you're not dead. Gurney looked at his duke. A little wager, that, spa- that patch of spice is a little more than a sand-grained thickness. It was nothing but bait to lure us in. Paul, looking at the smuggler man, it's a wager you would win. <laughs> He's now looking out. Are there any of my other father's men that are among your crew? Which, again, might would have been a great question. Are there, is there anybody left of the old Atreides? None. They're all spread thin. And most spent their profits to leave this place. Fair. But you stayed, Paul said. And then he remembers Gurney's story. Paul said, you, you stayed because Raban is here. I thought I had nothing left but revenge. Right? I, mean, I guess, yeah. If he's going to go kill Raban, this would be the place to do it. That's where he's right. at. An odd cry was heard in the cliffs above Gurney and Paul. Gurney looked up to see a Fremen waving a kerchief. Paul moved out to overlook the sand below. Ah, a maker comes. So Gurney looks out, and he sees this burrow mound of worm just coming straight for them. <coughs> he is big enough, Paul said. The factory crawler is now slowly turning, like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> they start moving towards the rocks. Turn around, turn around, turn around. I don't want to be eaten. And Paul's like, too bad we couldn't save the carry-all. I'm like, oh, why do we have to shoot that down? Oh, well. <laughs> Gurney looks at him, shocked. What? Looks at the factory crawler, and then to Paul, and then back at the crawler, remembering there were men that were in the carry-all when it was shot down. And then he says this, in like a critique almost. Your father would have been more concerned about the men he couldn't save. And Paul just, just hardcore stares Gurney down. Like, why would you say that? And then looks down. I know they were your friends, Gurney. To us, though, they were trespassing. Who might, they might see things they shouldn't see. And Gurney's like, I, I understand. Uh, but, but now I'm curious. What things shouldn't I see? <laughs> now I want to know what I shouldn't be seeing. Come on. So Gurney watches as this worm approaches. Bum, 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 bum. It rises out of the sand. And then, he, and then he watches Fremen run up, mount this worm, and turn it away from, from the crawler. Gurney is just flabbergasted i imagine just <laughs> eyes open jaw down moisture just spilling out everywhere right because like no one other than the fremen have seen this happen no no this yeah. is he goes there are stories and rumors but the creature that all men fear like in the universe fear you treat like a writing animal <laughs> like casually and then I like Paul. Paul's uh, response after uh, they like mount the worm. You know what yeah, I'm talking yeah. about? Uh-huh. He goes, yeah. uh huh. He goes, let's see that they shouldn't. 
do 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 something the something happened <laughs> paul they like mount the worm and paul's like there's, well there's one of the things you shouldn't have seen <laughs> whoops well there you go we'll, i guess we'll start now <laughs> welcome to the fremen gurney <laughs> you know it's nice here we have coffee <laughs> so paul says you heard my father speak of desert power right in that first staff meeting in Kaladin, they had the wind and the air and the sea, but here is, well, Arrakis is just one big, big old dune, dune desert. You need dune power. You need desert power. Yeah. And you're looking at it. There's, there's nothing. The surface of the planet is ours. No storm, no creature can stop us. No circumstance. And Gurney caught something. Paul said, us. Gurney just started staring at Paul, the blue within blue eyes. The smugglers called this when somebody had a, a touch of the spice brush. It means they'd gone a little bit too native. It was always kind of distrusted somebody who had the complete blue on blue. Right. Gurney himself has like a, a slight tint of blue, but not the the real Fremen, like blue, blue eyes, right? Yeah, they're like... It's it, it. All you see is a little black in the middle, but this is like like full blue. And there's his little Paul, his person he's been raising since he was you know three or four, and just pure native. Yeah, like this has got to be like unnerving for him. Well, yeah, it's about to continue to be unnerving because we find out what <laughs> Paul he learns what the Fremen call him. So <laughs> Paul asks um, about Raban. What's he doing? Oh, no, wait, wait, that's not yet. Yeah, yeah, it's right there. So, yeah, yeah. Paul asked about Gurney what Raban is doing in the sinks in the villages, right? Gurney, you know about Raban. You want to kill him. What's he doing? Here, Paul learns that Raban is no longer attacking anymore. They're only defending. Why, why is he doing that, Evan? Do you know why Raban's not attacking anymore? Um, because the, because, uh, the Baron... Gave him orders. Baron is squeezing. And he's not giving him any more troops. Right. So the people that you have left on the planet, you better work with. So he's not going to do anything too stupid. And we know the Harkonnens are just stupid. So they're completely defending. Which means they're immobilized. Which means the Harkonnens have already lost. Gurney smiles. A slow, knowing smiles. Our enemy is exactly where I want them to be, Paul said. He turns to Gurney. Well, Gurney, do you enlist with me for the finish of this campaign? <laughs> Sounds like D&D. Right. I, 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 we have a mission. When we got here, we were going to control the planet and end the vendetta with the Harkonnens. Are you in, buddy? We're going to do it. <laughs> enlist? My lord, I never left your service. Paul is embarrassed by this tender moment. And then comes bounding over the woman, Johnny, comes over. So Paul, of course, Paul's like, ooh, Johnny. Johnny, meet Gurney. Gurney, meet Johnny. <laughs> and Johnny's like, oh, yeah, I've heard about you. He won't shut up. He played me that one love song that one time we first met. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the night I knew when he pulled out that song and said, this is a song my friend Gurney used to play. My heart is failing love. <laughs> so Johnny informs Paul that the wind is coming. 
which means a storm is coming, which is nice because like they're here in the cave of birds. It's we'll just, yeah, we'll just go in the cave. We'll just wait till the storm happens. Right. But Gurney is still having like stranger thinking because he's like a worm came and they mounted it, but now they're afraid of the wind. What the heck? Like he, he has that whole thought process happen. So then Paul motions to hide the crawler in the ridge. And so Paul tells Johnny that some of this, and then Paul tells Johnny some of the smuggler crew is not to be just trusted. So then she leaves. And then Gurney probably like elbows Paul a little bit. Like, is that a, is that your woman? Yeah. She was, she was nice. Got that good blue one blue. I like it. I like it. I see what you're going for here. Didn't know you had a type, but you had a type. So Paul tells Gurney that Chani is indeed, uh, yeah, the, that's my woman, mother of my firstborn. There is another Atreides boy in the family line. There's another Leto. Do we know that before? We knew that they had a child, but we did not know that he named him Leto. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Named after his dad. Oh, my gosh. Somebody says I'm frozen, which is unfortunate. And I'm really sorry. I mean, you look great frozen. Am I still frozen? Can you hear me now? No, I can. We can hear you. Your oh. face is frozen. Well, I don't like. Good thing this is a podcast, huh? This is great. <laughs> as long as I've got a good face on. Oh, you're back. There you go. Oh, there it is. So Paul and Gurney move more inward on the ridge, right? They both put their face filters back, back on. Got to retain that moisture. No need to waste it anymore. And Paul asks Gurney, all right, who's the crew? Who's the bad guy? Who's the one you don't trust? And Gurney tells him there's a few new recruits that have a hint of Seleucus Secundus on them, which means Imperial Sardaukar. And then, they, and then Gurney hears it. Muadib! A voice called from above. Paul turned at the call, signaled to the Fremen above that he understood the sign. Gurney just staring at Paul. What? First you're Batman, popping out of nowhere. <laughs> then with the blue and the blue eyes, you've got a woman. You're with the Fremen. You've got a woman now. you got a son. Andrew Muhadib. You're Muhadib. You are the will of the sand. And then Paul says, yeah, that's my Fremen name. <laughs> like, do, 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 do. <laughs> this is what they, that's what they call me, Gurney man. They call me Muhadib. No biggie. <laughs> just, just blow past that one. It's fine. Yeah, it's no big deal. Gurney turns away, feeling an oppressive sense of foreboding. Like, this is Muhadib? My Paul? Paul is Muadib. Do you think in this moment, and he's again, we know that the Fremen are on a warpath. We know the Fremen are freaking crazy and no one would get in the way. Do you think Gurney can kind of feel that coming jihad? Yes. I mean, he's at least like, oh, whoa. Because the stories or whatever that he says he heard yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of Muadib. You know, it's, uh, it says, Gurney recalled the stories of, told of Muadib, the Lizan al-Gaib, how he had taken the skin of a Harkonnen officer to make his drum heads. That sounds made up, but maybe, you know. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, man. So. How he was surrounded by death commandos. 
how the Fadaikin would leap into battle using his name, Muhadib, on their lips. Him. The person they call him in the villages. That's Paul. He is a legend on this planet. Holy crap. Right. So I don't know if he feels the jihad specifically, but he's definitely got some weird vibes because apparently the little kid that he helped raise is like a psycho murderer drum making person, you know, like <laughs> it's crazy. He's he's a legend. He's yeah, he's a legendary scary man. Oh my gosh. He's legend scary. <laughs> so two Fremen come up, one of them being Stilgar. Stilgar. And then Gurney pieced it together. Another man from those Fremen legends he kept hearing of. Paul asked one of the Fremen, when a friend of him comes by, he's got this bag with him. And Paul's like, what's in the bag? Come on. And the Fremen produced, dun, 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 Gurney's Balaset from the bag. They saved it from the crawler. They took it, saying how all of the Fremen had heard of Gurney's prowess on the Balaset. Stilgar signal for the Fremen to pass the bundle over to Gurney. Gurney says, thank you. But Stilgar responds, thank you, Lord Duke. His countenance earns you admittance here. Gurney's a little puzzled by these hard undertones in this uh, conversation. He's not quite sure what is going on. Um, I, like to, I want to picture Gurney actually saying that. It's like, um, sorry, I'm a little puzzled by these dark undertones. <laughs> I just need a real clarifying conversation real quick. What are you thinking in this moment? Because I think we're cool. But I know you want to kill everybody. So, yikes. Uh, but Paul is like, oh, I want you two to be friends. Stilgar, you are like my Fremen uncle. You've taught me the ways of riding the sand. You've been a great person. Gurney, you are my person I get all of my poetic undertones from. You have raised me since I was a kid. I want you two to be friends. And so Gurney's like, Stilgar, the Fremen, the name is renowned. Any killer of Harkonnens, I'd feel honored to count among my friends. Gurney extends his hand to Stilgar. Stilgar just stares. Just dead-eyed. So Paul says, will you uh, touch hands with my friend Gurney Halleck, Stilgar? Slowly, Stilgar raises his hand to meet Gurney's. There are a few who haven't heard the name Gurney Halleck, he said. And then Stilgar turned to Paul. The storm is coming. So Paul's like, all right, cool. It's as far as we're going to get right now. Um, no biggie. <laughs> we'll work on it. I know, Stilgar, that you think I need to kill you, but I don't want to do that. And it's okay. With a lot. My head is just pounding with prescience, and I don't know what's happening. So I'm just going to follow you. So Stilgar leads him down into the cave of birds. Glow globes light a dome ceiling space that has a, re a raised ledge on one side. Paul leaps up on the ledge and the others follow. And then an alarm was rung. Oh, la, 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 right? There's, there's just sounds of people clashing and there's, I, I imagine that's what the alarm sound, sounds like. I just, there's a symbol. 
Sure, it was a symbol. I like to think someone called out. I'm they now, did, you know, like, Bah! well, they're fighting. People are fighting. Right. People are shouting, clashing of weapons. Everyone turns back around. Weapons draw. They run to the edge that they just jumped on. And they look down and they see like struggling figures everywhere. Just a bunch of people dead. Big mosh pit happening. Yeah. And then the Fremen all of a sudden have now surrounded three smugglers who are now backed into a triangle. So they've got all of them out. They got their Chris knives out, like poking them. But and then the three dudes just also poking back, but they're like backed against each other. Right. And then one of the Fadaikans see Paul on the ledge and he starts shouting his name Muhatib, Muhatib, Muhatib. One of the smugglers also sees Paul, takes out a throwing knife, and whips it across the cave of birds. But Paul easily dodges the knife. It clangs behind him. Gurney picks up the knife. On it is the crest of a golden lion. It's imperial. Uh Uh-oh. The Fremen then, of course, they've just attacked Muhadib. So the Fremen are like getting in closer with their Chris knives. And now... These three smugglers are now Sardaukar. They weren't smugglers. They were, they were Imperial Sardaukar the whole time. Yeah. And then casually, in a moment of legendary making, Paul steps calmly down off the lip of the ledge towards a group. Hold, he says. The Duke Paul Atreides commands you to hold. Paul then just casually steps over bodies of slain Fremen and Sardaukar. You, Sardaukar, Paul called to the three. By whose orders do you threaten a ruling duke? One of the three spoke up. Who says we're Sardaukar? Gurney is like right behind him, right, as he's walking down through the pile of bodies. Paul takes a knife out of Gurney's hands. This says you're a Sardaukar. Another man spoke up. Then who says you're a ruling duke? Paul gestured to the Fadaikin. They pressed closer. Paul says, these men, say I am. Your emperor bestowed Arrakis on House Atreides. I am House Atreides. There's silence. So badass. From these three, they're angry, confused, yet still proud to be Sardaukar. They know their job, and they're going to carry it out. So Paul turns to one of his lieutenants, Corba. How'd they get the knives? Corba says, they uh, concealed their knives in their still suits. We didn't check. We didn't check in the still suits. Sorry, boss. Paul surveys the dead and wounded throughout the chamber. Where's Chani? Paul asked. Still got spirit heard away, Corba responded. I hold myself responsible for the mistake, Muad'Dib. So evidently there are 10 Sardaukar that have died and only two Fremen died. And if Sardaukar is supposed to be the best fighters in the, in the whole Imperium, the Fremen make them look like chopped liver. Paul asked the spokesman again, the most vocal of the Sardaukar, what his name is. The man straightened up, looked to his other companions, but says nothing. Don't try it, Paul said. It's obvious to me that you were ordered to seek out and destroy Muhadib. I'll warrant you were the ones that suggested seeking spice in the deep desert. <gasps> Gurney gasped. 
from like literally behind him. Like, oh crap, these were the three assholes who <laughs> said we should go deeper. Yeah, dang it. Paul then uses the voice. Tell me your name. Uh, Captain Urmsham, Imperial Sardaukar. The man's jaw dropped, shocked. Saying his name was worse than treason. Paul then starts monologuing. Because at this point in time, why wouldn't he monologue? He has everything completely under control. Both the Harkonnens and the Emperor would pay very nicely to know about their failure to kill the Duke. Me. The Duke. House Atreides. The vendetta is not undone. That there are yada yada, you know, Paul does his monologue thing. And then still using the voice, Paul says, submit, Captain. At this, another man of the trio tries to attack Paul, but of course he dies pretty instantly on a Fadaiken Chris knife. No, dude, the captain kills him. The captain kills him? Yeah. Wait, submit. Wait, and then he tries to check. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, you do it. You do it. You do it. Everyone um, likes you better anyway. Uh, yeah, he said, submit, Captain. The man at the captain's left leaped without warning towards Paul, met the flashing impact of his own captain's knife in his chest. The attacker hit the floor in a sudden heap with the knife still in him. Okay, then, yeah, I, I read that captain is in, like, one of the Fadaiken captains. So, yeah, yeah. Yo, you're totally right. He, like, leaped out, and the Sardaukar captain just reached out and just stabbed Ooh. him right in the chest. Now, that's the power of the voice, ladies and germs. That's, that's some, don't mess with that ish. I got the power. <laughs> okay, that makes more sense on this next line then. So, cat, the captain, Armsham, then turns to the only guy left now and says, I decide what serves his majesty. The other guy drops his weapon in defeat. Then Captain Armsham looks at Paul and says, I've killed a friend for you. That makes more sense now. I killed a friend for you. Let us always remember that. You're my prisoners, Paul said. You submitted to me. Whether you live or die is of no importance. Bam! I don't Muad care. Deep. This is Muad'Dib land. That's going to happen. <laughs> so Paul then motions to the Fremen and they took the two Sardaukar away. Muad'Dib. Paul turned to see Korba, taking full blame for the matter. But Paul says... Fault is his. Next time we know, search your soul suits. Also, now that we know that the emperor is like seriously hunting us, this is what we need to look for. Yeah. Right? It's, they've got the sugar wire in their hair. They've got this. They've got that. This is what they're known for. Just so we know, I probably should have cleared this with you months ago. My bad. My prescience has failed me. So, but then Paul looks at Gurney, who's still like shocked. His whole chapter, he's like, holy what? It's a it's a long it's a big it's a big day for Gurney. It's a big day for Gurney. So Corba then says, uh, "It's best that we kill them." And Paul shakes his head, still looking at Gurney. No, I want them to escape. <gasps> what, sire? Gurney says. Yes, Paul says, looking at him. Your your man is right. Gurney says, we should kill them at once. You've shamed Imperial, Imperial Sardaukar. When the Emperor finds out, the Emperor's, not, the Emperor's not likely to have that power over me, Paul says. 
Then Paul spoke coldly, softly, slowly. Something had changed when Paul had locked eyes with the Sardaukar. A sum of decisions had accumulated in his awareness. It's like his prescience was on, but when he locked eyes, he knew that like, oh, the path is here and we are taking it. Yeah. This is this this is the series of steps I need to do to complete my mission. This is the path I need to take. And then he turns to Gurney and asks a very loaded question. Gurney, are there many guildsmen around Raban? Gurney doesn't understand this question. Do you understand the question, Evan? Why does Paul care about guildsmen around the Harkonnens? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember what happens after this in the chapter that I jumped. <laughs> okay. So do you have some opposing forces, right? You have the, the emperor who controls the spice, wants to keep the spice flowing. That's why he put the Harkonnens in control. But who else has an interest in keeping spice flowing? The Bene Gesserit. Yeah. And the guild. Right. Because they yeah. need it for their like mutant uh, guildsmen guys right so they can pilot the ships and go fold space time and all that stuff yeah so they need that but why would they it's clear that whose side are they taking because um the guildsman the guild buys from the fremen right the fremen pays them handsomely not to have satellites on the southern hemisphere right so who and they know what's going on in the southern hemisphere so whose side is the guilds taking are they taking the emperor's side or are they taking the uh fremen side i mean both kind of but it seems like more so the fremen because they're like basically going against the emperor because of what the fremen can give them right well so gurney says that arrakis is currently crawling with guild agents and they're buying up spice like it's going to run out as if it's the most precious thing in the universe they know something is about to happen the guild is prescient they can kind of see the future in little bits and they know that there's an event in the future that's going to cause spice to go away or at least that's one possibility mm -hmm. so they're trying to buy up as much as possible Dang. in this time so paul then says they're buying up spice because it is the most precious thing in the universe to them. Paul looks towards Stilgar and Chani, who are now coming towards him. And we control it, Gurney. Gurney protests, says, no, 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 the Harkonnens, they are definitely in control of how the spice comes out, right? He doesn't understand yet. But then Paul says, the people who can destroy a thing control it. Now, I want to just sit on this line. People who can destroy a thing control it. I was listening to the audiobook and this hit me differently because where do we see this idea pop up first? This is not a new idea in this book. That whoever can destroy a thing controls it. The, if the, the ability to take something away is the ability to control it. I can't remember now. <clears throat> All right. Um, your, your, no, your favorite character says it. My favorite character? Yeah, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen says it. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. 
Yeah, because it's the character you hate the you hate the most. When he's talking, they just got Howitt, right? In the right. in all the battle in the Battle of Arakeen, they've got Howitt now, and they tell they tell them to administer a poison to Howitt. Mm-hmm. And they will continue to give the antidote every day. And then when they want him to die, they will just get rid of the antidote. Just like I allow you to breathe, and when I take away your air, you die. Spice to the guild and to the Imperium has become this idea that without it, everything would fall apart. This is, Paul is using his grandfather's idea to make this happen. His, his, in, his entire... His, yeah, the, the, the Baron's idea. Yes. It's the Baron's logic that he's using to completely take Arrakis out of Imperial control. Mm. It's that same line of thinking. All right. The, the people who can destroy a thing, they control it. So now Stilgar and Chani are now with Gurney and Paul. Paul takes a Sardaukar knife and then presents it to Stilgar. Here's a moment. He says to Stilgar, you live for the good of the tribe. Could you draw my life's blood with that knife? Stilgar growls for the good of the tribe. Then use the knife, Paul said. Are you calling me out? A confused and angry Stilgar demands. If I do... Paul said, I shall stand here without weapon and I will let you slay me for the good of the tribe. Stilgar takes a deep breath. Chani cries out, Usul! And then quickly glances to Gurney because she just used a secret name for Paul in front of a foreigner. Who's this guy again? Why am I? Never mind. (laughs) Back to Paul. Stilgar looks at the knife, still silent. Paul tells Stilgar, you are Stilgar. Like he affirms his identity. You are a fighting man. But when the Sardaukar began fighting, you did not rush to the front of the battle. Your first thought was to protect Johnny. She is my niece, Stilgar said. And if there was any doubt that your Fadaikin couldn't take care of this scum, right? But then Paul cuts him off. Why was your first thought of Johnny? It wasn't, Stilgar responded. It was for you. Bum, bum, bum. Then Paul says, do you really think you could lift your hand against me? Stilgar starts to tremble, starts to shake. It is the way. Paul responded that it's also the way to kill off-worlders and take their water. Like, so maybe if you stumble upon two off-worlders who have no idea what they're doing, custom is to kill them and take their water. But... You let me and my mother live one night. Do you remember that? Hmm. 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 Sometimes ways change. Which is exactly what Hera said, like, in the chapter. Like, ways change. Things have changed in our history, and maybe now is one of those times where things need to change. Right. Stilgar is trembling. He has a knife in his hand, but he's turning it over, like just looking at it, feeling it. You know the thing you do when you're nervous when you don't want to look at somebody? You're just like, got to play with something. He's like currently doing it. on something else. Like. Right. Completely. When I am Duke in Arakeen with Chani by my side, Paul said, do you think I'll have time to concern myself with governing 
Stance to bar? Why would I cut off my right arm? Paul says. Slowly, Stilgar looks up at him. You. Stilgar, do you think I wish to deprive myself of the tribe of your wisdom and strength? Stilgar responds in a low voice. I could kill the young man of my tribe who is known to me. And he's talking about Paul. Shahud willing. The Wazan al-Gaib, though. Him I could not harm. You knew this when you handed me this knife. I love this moment. This moment, like, Stilgar fully gets drenched in the, in the religious legend. Like, Paul is more than a boy at this point. He is the voice of the outer world who knows things before they happen. So, of course, he puts you yourself in a situation where Stilgar ha- like, knows he has no option in this. And he, like, you knew this. You knew this whole time. But you needed me to know as well. Like he's fully encapsulated in this Messiah, like orthodox. He's in it. And it's where Paul agrees. I knew. I knew the moment I handed the knife, you wouldn't do it. Stilgar opens the palm of his hand. The knife falls, clanging on the floor. Ways change. Gas! So sick. Evan raises his. Evan holds his arms in just complete <laughs> celebration of the moment. <laughs> Paul then turns to Chani, telling her to go south to fetch his mother. The time is now. The path is, does not go south and rest. The path is to the Harkonnens. The path is to war. And I hear like the drum. It's the boom, 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 boom. They're going on the war path now. You give my mother a message for her, for her ears alone. Tell her that Stilgar acknowledges me as Duke of Arrakis. But a way must be found to make the young man accept us without combat. Chani looks at her uncle, Stilgar. Stilgar, now still slightly embarrassed, growls at her to do what he says. And that everyone knows he could not lift a hand against Paul for the good of the tribe. Like, ah, you're right. I wouldn't. I'm not going to kill him. Right. Paul says she'll return with the Reverend Mother. Jessica, but Paul says that Stilgar was right to protect her. He, he was right to take her away from the action. And that for Paul's sanity, you should stay in the South to be safe. Chani protests, but Paul calls her his special pet name, Sihaya, as she turns to follow his orders. Just a little, just a little sugar. Hey, babes. I, I'm still with you. Like, but you had to do what I said. <laughs> Gurney, at this point in time, I just imagine it's getting like closer to like this inner circle, like just inching, like, oh, what is happening? And he hears something. He hears something that's blown his mind more than anything else so far. Jessica is alive. Uh-oh. So he asks, like, what is, what's happening? So Paul tells Gurney how Duncan Idaho, may he rest in peace, Saved Paul and Jessica the night of the raid, and he died to let them escape. Right. And Gurney thinks, the, the she-witch is alive. The one I swore vengeance against. Paul doesn't even know the evil creature who gave birth to him. Paul casually jumps back on the ledge, looks down over the complete utter carnage below him. <laughs> And he thinks bitterly how today another chapter in the legend of Muhadib was written. It'll be written that Muhadib did not even draw his knife, and he slew 20 Sardaukar with a, 
with his bare hands. I don't know about the legend where he takes a Harkonnen and makes a drum skin out of him. That sounds like you said that that sounds like it's a legend. Yeah, that sounds made up. Like this, like, oh, yes, Muhadib did not draw his knife. He killed 20 Sardaukar with his bare hands in this moment. Yeah, right. yeah completely made up. He didn't, he didn't fight anybody. But you know what? Legend's sure. been a legend. Yeah. Gurney turned to follow Stilgar, but he's still lost in thought, captivated by Jessica being alive. The she-witch is alive. Well, though she betrayed our bones in loathsome graves, I must contrive that if Paul learns the truth about her, Paul must know before I slay her. Uh-oh. And thus ends chapter 43. Man. I love how, like, I mean, I asked you you're, at the beginning of chapter, you were like, I just hate uh, anticipation. And every chapter ends with like an insane amount of anticipation. Right. <laughs> For real. It's crazy. Because now Gurney is in with Paul. He's kind of like been accepted, not in any kind of official or ritual way, but he's been accepted into the Fremen because of Paul. But he still thinks Jessica killed everybody. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of like a snake in the grass right now because nobody knows that nobody knows what he thinks he knows. That what? That he thinks he thinks he knows that Jessica killed everybody back in the in Arakeen, but nobody knows that he's thinking that. No. They could care less about him. Right. And so he's he's straight up trying to kill their reverend mother for something that she didn't do, but nobody knows that he he thinks she did that thing. That was all really complicated. Yeah, no, they, oh man, it's, yeah. And now imagine what's going to happen when Jessica actually shows up. Yeah. So, um. I mean, I'm sure she could handle herself. She's a reverend mother now. She could probably easily take him out. But uh, yeah, that's um, it's going to be good when it happens. Right. And, and it's happening soon. The book is rapidly coming to a close. We are now on the warpath to the Harkonnens. Yeah. It's going to end. Yeah. That, I loved how he, bro- he decided to release this article. Like, no, no, I don't. No, no. They need to go back to their emperor and tell them who I am. Right. Because I'm coming for you. Dun, 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 dun. Man, one thing that I really like about that I just thought about in this chapter is how between books two and three, um, Paul goes from Neo to Morpheus without without us even seeing what happened, right? Because right. he was even able to like understand the prescient vision right then. Like he knew he was able to like follow the path where he needed to go. Yeah, it all was out. something he couldn't do at all. I think he's so close to the end now. He's like, right. And it's then that moment he walks out, he's like, oh, this is what needs to happen. Oh, this is all the stuff. Oh, yep. We got to go. Yeah. And then when he's talking to, to Gurney about, you know, explaining stuff, he's confident. He knows exactly what he's talking about. And he's he's got... 
you know, he's got that Morpheus vibe, that vibe of like, I know everything that's going on. You clearly have no idea what's going on, you know? Um, oh, yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't think Gurney knows anything about the prescience or what he's happening in his brain or anything else. But it's right. like, yeah, it's like if this were a chess game, you thought you'd, you could win in 20 moves. You just learned you could win in two and it's right. over. Yeah. Let's go end this thing. Hmm. Hmm. Good chapter. All right, I'll, yeah, yeah. Send us your favorite moments. Uh, email us, readingdune at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter, Reading Dune. We also have a Discord where we hang out. And even if you've read past Dune, we have stuff for you there as well. That's true. Um, Evan doesn't go in that because it's all spoilers, but other people do. So, <laughs> yes. I'll admit that I click on them just to get rid of the notification, but then I don't read anything. So It wouldn't make sense anyway, but yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, as always, please thank you everyone uh, who is live watching it. Pff, I appreciate it so much. Um, and please stay spicy. Peace. Peace. <laughs>